Welcome to another edition of New York Update. I'm Jake Jacobs, New York City school teacher, and we are a weekly podcast of news headlines, uh, mostly centering around education and New York State, but kind of anything goes. And we're going to have a great guest today who I'll introduce in a second. But first, I want to clear away some of the education headlines from this week since we last spoke. There was a state investigation that found Success Academy, the the largest um, charter school chain in New York State, in violation of civil rights of students with disabilities. That was pretty interesting news. It hasn't been announced what the remedies are going to be yet, but this is definitely going to put Success Academy on their heels because there are other lawsuits working their way through the courts, which we uh, reported on before. So we're going to keep an eye on that. Another quick one, and that is Governor Cuomo cuts school construction aid. Uh, This might get a little bit tricky to explain, but the governor is seeking to update the local property value assessment formulas for state building and renovation funding. So this is the funding that the state gives to school districts specifically on a line item for building, construction, renovation, repairs, and it has to be used for those purposes. He's not technically cutting the amount that's being given, but he wants to update the formulas, which haven't been updated in quite a long time. And that means it's going to disproportionately hurt districts whose property values have risen over the last 10 or 20 years. They say that the funding formulas that are in use right now have go, go back to 1980s. And so a couple examples in this Times Union piece were uh, Long Island districts who stand to lose about 15% of their construction aid from the state and some upsta- upstate districts stand to lose somewhere in the area of 35 or 39 percent. And so this is kind of like a back doorway where they're uh, revising formulas and updating formulas, but the reality is, is that it's really going to pinch the schools in particular areas. And so that we're going to keep an eye on that too as that makes its way towards the budget negotiation. And those are the big headlines. We'll get to a few more next week. But now we are going to introduce Dr. Mike Hogan, the Associate Dean at Long Island University. He's the Director of Clinical Education and Professional Certification, which is a very fancy way of saying he's the head cheese, it sounds like, in the education department, depending on whether or not uh, people are going to get through, right, and get their license, right? I'm sure you've seen a lot of students and a lot of people getting their degrees and getting their certifications through the years, and so why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your position, and then we'll jump into the political stuff. Right. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Jake, and... uh... Good evening, everyone. Yeah, I came to Long Island University uh, by, you know, in a somewhat uh, circuitous path. I uh, grew up in New York, uh, but I actually went to college down south. Alabama, right? Down in Alabama, and a uh, little Jesuit college in Mobile, Alabama. And after a short, uh, after being drafted and spending a little time in the Army, I came back to Mobile, went back to Mobile, and taught school down there. And I uh, had a wonderful time. Uh, I was very involved with civil rights, as a, as a, or somewhat involved with civil rights. My, my father certainly was in the 1950s and 60s. And I became involved and interested, and especially in the turbulent year of 1968, did something a little bit more radical than my colleagues uh, at Xavier High School and, and headed south and went to this small school in the south and, and loved it. And as I say, after a short, after my time in the United States Army, I came out and went to teach school. And it was right after the Charlotte Mecklenburg case where the courts finally said, you know, it's time to get serious about desegregation. You know, after Brown versus the board in 54, very little was done. So the courts got serious in the 70s. So my teaching experience, especially in the early years, was uh, breaking up a lot of fights. (laughs) (laughs) But I had a great time and took a school that had really been torn apart by uh, the whole, the throes of of desegregation and rightful, you know, rightful desegregation, no question about it. But, you know, there's none of those journeys are smooth. 
but but it really it really it worked out very very well. I learned a tremendous amount, and I tell people often in my forty year career, forty plus year career, that those are probably the six most fulfilling years. Really working that closely with kids who really needed your your help. Right, high, definitely <clears throat> high needs area. I was at the uh, the Bernie rally uh, on Saturday where they launched his campaign in Brooklyn. It seems like they were really highlighting his years in '68 in uh, specifically, but um, the, the the way that he was also drawn to he was drawn to Chicago where there was real battle over segregation and he, you know there was a lot of work to do and uh, you know he, he was. Really, he wasn't really pushing this aspect in the 2016 race, but he was introduced by Sean King, the Daily News writer, and they wanted it really to get out there that he had this great civil rights past that a lot of people didn't realize, maybe they didn't emphasize it enough, and the fact that you know white people would stand up and they would travel and they would really become activists in this fight when at a time where even a lot of white people that felt the right way were just like weren't willing to get out of their box or get out of their safety zone right mm-hmm. so um it, it, we might hear a lot about a lot more about that um in the democratic primary this year but um it's uh you know it's an interesting story that you were born in new york spent a lot of time down south came back eventually and have been in the education field for so long so uh, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the education reform wars, right, which mm-hmm. is uh, charter schools, high-stakes testing, the Common Core, you know, a little bit. Now it's more about the evaluations lately. But one of the biggest issues that we've been covering um, and I've been writing about is the CFE case, the Campaign for Fiscal Equity. We were just talking about the latest kind of chess moves last week when Senator Robert Jackson from Upper Manhattan went on a limb and he said that he would vote no on any budget that didn't include full funding, the, the $2 billion that the additional that the Board of Regents is recommending and that everybody in the public school community is recommending and has been fighting for for a long time. It seems as though he's trying to get some other state senators to join him, but as far as I've seen so far, he stands alone. What's your view on the CFE case? This is the the battle over it basically it's socialism. I mean, you know, they want to they want to direct aid towards the neediest schools based on poverty and a couple other factors and it's been, there's been resistance because they're afraid that, you know, if they raise taxes on millionaires and billionaires that they'll leave and that they might also uh, redirect funding from kind of like middle class schools or other suburban areas which would kind of take from Peter to give to Paul. So how do you fall down on the CFE battle that's been brewing for about 20-something years? 25 years, right? Okay. And Robert Jackson was the uh, the founding plaintiff. He right. was the original plaintiff uh, on behalf of his uh, children in the Bronx in 1994. I am a, a staunch supporter of the CFE. I wouldn't call it socialism, <laughs> Jake. It's my, I think it's more mainstream than that. But let me just say this. I don't come from, you know, with my uh, my social and political ideas from books. I mean, I, you know, after I left Alabama, I uh, spent 10 years as an as assistant superintendent and deputy superintendent in two districts, large districts in Colorado. Oh. So I know affluence mm-hmm. and I know what it's like for students to be left behind in a in a funding formula. Mhm and not get their needs met. And I worked in Colorado Springs, which was a, a uh, somewhat of a urban district with a significant minority population. And from there, I went to become superintendent of schools in Farmington, New Mexico, a school district with about 10,000 students, 38% or so Native American students. Really? You know, virtually everyone living below the poverty line and really significantly left behind by society and they they were being terribly discriminated against in school and blindly so in some cases you know sometimes it's not blatant discrimination it's ignorance the you know it's wheel. the the well and it's the failure of educators and you know the school boards but educators to really understand the tremendous differences in culture 
And, you know, they would take some Native American uh, behaviors that were quite normal in their culture to being hostile or mm-hmm. uh, disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, you know, it was a terrible thing. And, right. and lives, lives and, and were lost in the balance many, in many uh, cases because of children not being given the support they should be given. You know, going into lives of poverty, anybody who knows much about the Native American populations, especially in the West, Navajo, very, very high rates of substance abuse, which leads to domestic violence, which led to all kinds of different social problems. And I tied that back to a great degree on the failure of the education systems. So my support of the CFE is not theoretically based. It's practically based. It's based in, I know, I've seen what what children, what happens to children when they're not given the support that they need. They're not given the educational opportunity, especially in the young years, yeah. especially Formative. in preschool, yeah. you know, where they don't get the literary, uh, linguistic mm-hmm. background, the foundational background, the exposure to culture, and, you know, as, as well-meaning as the community might be, that leaves those kids behind. And you can do all you want to, you know, all you can possibly do, but the bell curve will show you, you know, only a certain minority of students are going to get through having suffered that, that deprivation. Yeah. And so the CFE addresses poverty and high poverty schools, and it, it the formula was structured to bring more money to those schools because they have higher needs. I would argue that the CFE doesn't meet the needs, even if it were fully funded, which it's not. The, the That formula needs to be adjusted. Okay. The impacts, the compounding impacts of poverty and racism on students leaves a, leaves tremendous uh, disadvantages, you know, and, and everybody, uh, mo- most of your listeners know that, you know, f- 75 years ago, even 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you, there, was a, there were blue-collar jobs for kids who didn't graduate from high school or barely graduated. Those jobs are few and far between. Good jobs, allowing somebody to enter the middle class and and, and have a home and a car, educate their children, and give them the things they need to have. There are a few jobs out there that allow that, that don't require college degrees and professional degrees. And as a result, our failure to really give high-quality education to every kid is really, is severely impacting those children and ultimately the economy of New York and our country. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I think that it's it's not only an investment in future generations or this immediate generation but it's also it's it's also economically backward thinking because there's going to be more societal costs to not having these kids being put right into the careers and professions that we have a need for you know instead it's going to be really competitive over a, a number of low skill you know jobs instead of you know, uh, preparing them and and pushing uh, American competitiveness, pushing forward. So let me ask you specifically within the CFE funding, I know that, you know, poverty is one of the main factors in the current funding formula, and there have been attempts to take that out completely and replace it more with enrollment, kind of like um, the rate of enrollment, right? Like how fast a district has grown, you know, over a specified time period. The number of English language learners, you know, which is a little tricky because you have different countries, different countries of origin. And, you know, sometimes there might be legislation that's targeted to like, you know, give aid to a specific constituency, wink, wink, you know, over another. And so we see that at play. So what's your feeling about, for my money, I would like them to fund the first year in the current formula, just so that we don't have to fight about it. And then in the next year or two, when the rest is due, we can maybe, you know, uh, make some changes to the formula. But for the immediate, I'm fine with the poverty formula because if you get that first third, the first, you know, year installment, it's going to go to those same kind of schools no matter what. And I feel that they've used the changing of the formula as a delay tactic or a stall tactic, you know, to prevent yeah. paying. So what's your what's your view of the of the formula and how it should okay. change? Well, 
first of all, I think poverty, the poverty index is very, very important. I mean, extremely important. And it frequently, it frequently is hand in hand with the ELL, the, the English language learner um, issue it's as well. Yeah. And, you know, the more, po- see, poverty concentrates. You know, if you have a 10% poverty in your district, there's going to be a lot of integration of poor children in middle class with middle-class children and middle-class classrooms. And research shows that that integration in and of itself is a powerful part of a learning tool. Mm-hmm. So, But when you have high concentrations of poverty, right. it's, there's a multiplied negative effect. Right. That, that, that's one point that I, I want to make. I also want to make some, something, at least from my perspective, again, having been a school teacher a school administrator and, and district administrator and finance director for 10 years, pouring money at a school without accountability is a recipe for trouble. Uh, most superintendents are not equipped. Right. They're not equipped. They're not prepared to really, and I teach school administration, I teach law, I teach finance and leadership. So I speak from experience both practicing and in the classroom, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of training. And I think that the state really needs, and the State Department of Education, and I'm serious about this, needs to have a cadre of experts who can help school districts, especially high-need school districts, to spend money effectively. And I know there's some criticism. I know that uh, people would say, well, you know, this oversight is, you know, more a big brother. I'm telling you, everybody needs oversight to some extent. There has to be oversight. I would not just pour $2 billion into school districts without saying, listen, here's where we need the money to go. We need smaller class size in grades one through three. We need more social workers. We need more nurses. We need counselors. But but you can't just hire them. I know for a fact that in some high-need school districts, there's there's some serious corruption. There is is a serious lack of accountability. What happens in some school boards, it doesn't happen in Rockland County or in your, perhaps your listening range, but I know there are school districts that by the very fact that they've been neglected, they have developed some very corrupt tendencies. Yes. And there's a tremendous amount of nepotism. Mm-hmm. And uh, that needs... When I was hired by a school district that had some serious nepotism, and it took some pretty strong, you know, words from a young superintendent to say, hands off, school board. You don't call up a principal and and ask for favors. You don't call up, you know, the personnel director and ask him to hire your brother Vinny. Yeah. That All shouldn't... That. And you need to hold people who have specialties, accountable psychologists and social workers, to make sure that the work is being done. That there, that there's outcomes. Right. We pay, and I'm, you know, somewhat of a fiscal conservative when it comes to this. I think we need more money in high need schools. Mm-hmm. I'm not so convinced we need money in our affluent schools. A, they have capacity to raise money locally, and B. You know, I, I, I taught, it's a very, an interesting side. I was teaching school finance to ladies and gentlemen who wanted to become school administrators, and I happened to be teaching it in a very affluent school district in Westchester. Mm-hmm. And I won't mention the name, but one of my students said to me, Dr. Hogan, I'm going to have to be, I'm going to be gone for the next two weeks. I said, oh, gee, where are you going? He says, I'm going on a trip with the students. And I said, oh, gee, where are you going? He goes, we're going to Paris and, uh, and you know, France and, and probably uh, I think we're also going up to, uh, um, you know, to, to uh, Rome and up to Florence. And I said, how sweet is that? You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> we did a lot of staycations when I was a kid, yeah. but uh, rarely did I have the opportunity. I never had the opportunity to go to Europe on spring break. Not exactly eco-tourism. No. So I, uh, you know, so we have tremendous advantages. And I mean, I could name 10 school districts without even yeah. breaking a sweat saying these kids have more than they possibly do. And I will also say this. We don't fund our schools appropriately in the state of New York. And I will tell you, there is an incredible amount of undertaxed property in the state of New York. And the middle class, and the middle class in Rockland County is overtaxed. 
and it's overtaxed because major real estate owners in New York City are undertaxed and they're protected and it's wrong. And I hope that the new New York State Senate will be vigilant in looking at a new way to fund education that totally that looks at property taxes through and property values throughout the state of New York and and starts to tax people fairly. I know there are people with $75 million homes in the Hamptons, which happens to be their second or third home, yeah. that are paying less than a quarter of 1% of the market value in their property taxes. Yeah. And there are people in Rockland paying 2.5% of the market value. That is wrong. That is not progressive. That's regressive. And they need to hold their legislators accountable. I've made the proposal, uh, you know, somewhat informally to our local legislators. We ought to have a statewide property tax levy for schools. And everybody pays the same effort. And I guarantee the taxpayers in Rockland's taxes will go down. So, right, but but it, it's not necessarily a revenue raiser. It's more like of a, a, a more of a, a fairness equalizer to. It may be a raiser too. Well, it sounds like you, you you're probably cutting out some loopholes and cutting out some shady. Oh yes, like, I mean the lack of audit. Well, I don't think anybody, any of your listeners who has who has been following the uh, saga of the president of the United States yeah, the and West, how West he. Well, his West his New York City property. He constantly he constantly undervalued it when it came to tax time, and overvalued it when it came to uh, getting on the Forbes five hundred list. Or insurance and loans. Exactly. So, I mean, the, the point being, and it's a major point, because, Jakey, you understand this. One of the most brilliant tactics of the wealthy is to have the middle class and the poor fight with each other. Right. I mean, right. is that is that not? So I don't want to give those poor kids who don't, well, I'm not going to call them poor kids, those kids who don't work hard enough more of my money, my hard-earned money, right. when they don't do anything, right. when they just goof around in school all day long. Well, and their you know, $100 there, sneakers. There, and there is some racism that creeps in. But, but if we all... But it's fed. If we all agree on the theoretical platitude that education is the great equalizer and that you take a young baby that could be anything, right, regardless of you know, what their station is in life, and that if they just had a fair, decent, sound public school there, you know, ready to take them from kindergarten on up or pre-K on up, that they could be the next Steve Jobs or, you know, whatever, that that's what we need to do. And so the the fight over the CFE, I mean, where it kind of dies is when you ask, how is it going to be paid for? And you brought up a really great way to kind of like, you know, look under some rocks and find money. I've spoken to a number of state senators um, and assembly, and everybody seems to have their own little kind of, you know, money raiser, you know, specifically talking about CFA, something that we can do. For example, uh, David Carlucci says that we can speed up the the unclaimed lottery fund that would that would make millions available like, you know, a year earlier. I spoke to Jessica Ramos. She said, why don't we disallow the um, gambling deduction? You know that if you lose, like, money gambling, you're allowed <laughs> to deduct. I think, I think something is it, something as high as, like, $90,000. It's crazy. We've heard other things. We've heard uh, the commuter tax, bring back the commuter tax. We've heard about, you know, maybe um, using a little bit of congested pricing. But the big thing is, this isn't the whole kit and caboodle, but this is, you know, a nice, would be a nice portion of it, would be restoring the millionaire's tax, which which was called the millionaire's surcharge. We had it in place 2010. I understand from Billy Easton that Cuomo came into office in 2011. He cut it in half, and there it stays. So he can still say that he we have the millionaire's tax, right? We didn't get rid of it. He just cut it in half. The, the argument against it is that these millionaires are so flexible in where they put down as their primary residence that if they don't like, you know, the tax rate in New York, they could just claim one of their other homes as their primary residence without av- actually having to, you know, load up a moving van or anything. They just mm-hmm. they just deprived New York of potentially That's right. millions and and you know, maybe even billions of dollars. They pointed to one Wall Street guy who had such a great year that he ended up paying 150 million dollars to New York State in taxes and that if this guy you know, goes to Florida or something, you know, that that all that money's gone. So 
how do we? I mean, you know, it, it's kind of like a whack-a-mole game, right? But how yeah. do how do we get everybody on board? Well, you can't take your property with you to Florida, right? You know, I, I mean, uh, this is heresy, but I'll say it. If you're getting a New York State pension and you just, you know, it, it's it's tax-free, right? In New York, I think when you leave the state, maybe there ought to be a two, three, or four percent tax on it. Okay, because you're not putting your money back in to the system in New York, that's in effect paying for that pension. Right, and, that, and, that, and that's, yeah, something that, that's something that Cuomo's uh, Excelsior plan looks at, right? Whether or not the recipients of the state aid for college yeah. tuition yeah. actually stay yeah. in the well, state. I, I, well, for, let, but let's talk big money, Jake. Right. This is the, you the, can the, go, the, go to the Empire no, Foundation and look at, and I'm not talking about the average teacher who puts in 35 years, you know, and gets a... $60,000 a year pension. I'm talking about people retiring out of some of these hospitals getting three and $400,000 a year for the rest of their lives. I want to know where they're living and whose taxes and what what kind of tax oh, rates they're paying. Like COOs and COOs. Yeah, there are thousands. Every year, every year in the state of New York, you've got literally an additional two or 3,000 people Retiring on pensions in excess of a hundred million dollars from the state, um, and a hundred thousand dollars a year from the state of New York. Right, tier one people. I'm just saying, yeah. So, and I'm not, and I'm not suggesting we're punishing anybody, but and I don't think that's right. People paid their dues. Although I have, you can do a whole other show on on public pensions and and clawbacks. Uh, well, not clawbacks. Well, you you you're, you're you're on the other side of the you're on the other side of the ledger. I was very active in the teachers union when I was. Uh, when I was in Alabama, and uh, uh, you know, rightfully so, they're very poorly paid. But um, yeah, I didn't even know yeah, they so had I, a union. So I, so <laughs> I, well, it wasn't. It was a, an association. Okay. And I could, I could give you a whole nother show on how union leaders have betrayed their own their own them. members yeah. uh, with shenanigans. We speak about and speak and about. and I, you know, as I we we we've all heard, you know. Uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So everyone out there, every school teacher, every person out there, you know, hold your your union representatives accountable at all times because you know they right. they, they deserve it and they want it. Right, <laughs> and and vote vote. You know the uh, the UFT uh, elections by mail are coming up any day now, and there's uh, what eight seventy eighty thousand. Uh, school teachers only tw- uh, somewhere between seventeen and twenty five percent vote. Yeah. I think it was twenty three percent last time. Yeah. Comes up every three years. Um, so yeah, I mean we could probably do the whole show on the CFE funding. Um, we 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 do need to pivot away because there's so much more I wanted to ask you about. But yeah, you know, really interesting stuff. Really interesting stuff. You know, the only the only thing I'd add is that you know if the state is going to put in so called experts. You know, I would like to see, I agree, you know, I am kind of like, you know, whatever is economically feasible and, and conservative, you know, fiscally responsible is giving the taxpayer a return, you know, I, I'm for. I would say that, you know, we have to be careful because there is patronage and nepotism in the districts. But then, you know, if you're if the state is putting somebody in there too, a so-called expert, you know, I would just, you know, hope that they are proven at at what they're being put in to do, as opposed to somebody like Kathy Black or, you know, somebody's cocktail party. No question, no question about it. No, they, yeah, you don't want, you don't want a bunch of folks, you know, getting a thousand dollars a day per day to, 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 well, well, just, you know, I mean, you have a very significant and quality retired superintendent contingent and principal contingent that you know people who have really done a great job in their careers who could serve not not as big brother but as someone who can hold people's hands and say gee this is i mean i work a lot with school districts um jake i work a lot i work with south huntington and glen cove hicksville deer park districts that have a lot of uh diversity high you know a lot of high needs children a lot of English language learners, and uh, you know, I'll take South Huntington for example. They are a tremendously high high school graduation rate, high regents passing rate, and they've done it with hard work, 
with dedication, with really good leadership, and a really fine teacher force that has been empowered by the leadership. And that, that's a, that formula needs to be taught to people. Because, you know, again, I was a superintendent. I had, whatever, a thousand people working for me, maybe more. I was a kid. I mean, you know, I, yeah. and I didn't have that experience right. that I have now, right. you know, about ask questions first, listen. You know, the first thing you should, you know, the first thing any uh, significant, you know, any administrator ought to do for the first month of their job is shut their mouths and listen to people. You know, right. that's the, 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 what's the, what's the, what are the issues here? Yeah. What's, what's working? What's not working? And, um, and, and the smartest move I think I ever made when I was a superintendent is I had just had to, to remove a principal and I had, went into the faculty meeting and the faculty looked at me and like, okay, where do we go from here? And I said to him, I said, you tell me. <laughs> I said, we have some of the lowest reading scores in the country. I'm not a reading expert. You are. You tell me what reading system will be best suitable for our kids, what it's going to cost to train you, what it's going to cost to implement, and I'm there with you. Because right. there's nothing more important, but you're the experts, I'm not. I'm right. the facilitator, you're the expert. Yeah. And and that's what teachers want to hear, that they are experts. And uh, so, you know, the worst thing you can do in a school district is pound people down, from the take away take, from the top down, Take away their sense of accomplishment, and fulfillment, and just make school, make teaching a grind. Well, that's, you know, that's Boy, you, you've that's seen where it. We're at. That's you've where we're seen at. it, and you've seen what happens to <laughs> yeah. the results in the classroom. We do. You know, we. It, it, I mean, New York City is is like a, a district like no other. Yes, so, it is. Like you know, the the possibility of being able to talk to somebody in charge to affect change. Yeah. it's near impossible. And, well, know, I did. I did. I did meet. Uh, Chancellor uh, Carranza uh, back in December, and I did offer my expertise. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm sure my phone will be ringing off the hook, but <laughs> but you know, it's he's a young guy, and I like him. He's he's energetic, and I've heard he spends you know half his day, you know, out in the schools visiting and so forth. But when you have a district that big, you need good lieutenants. Yeah. You need to find. The best people, not not the smart Alex that come out of Harvard or wherever the heck they come out of, but really good people who have been in the trenches, who know how to communicate. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean that, that that's the key. I, I look for a proven track record, right? Yeah. A principal that has run a great school for a number of years and had, you know, and or uh, you know maybe assistant superintendents yeah. have uh, that have turned districts around. Somebody with a track record, right? And we, now you find a track record, you ask the people who work for them. Right. If they, they'll tell you. So, so, so yeah. Let, so, um, we, uh, just uh, just in the interest of time, we we yep. we should probably just uh, leave that. Sure, there. absolutely. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Um, just in the last couple of days, um, yeah. where the governor uh, wants. Uh, he he wants to eradicate uh, fusion voting. So this is getting into the election process. And yeah. it's great that uh, Governor Cuomo is um, seeing fit to tinker with uh, our elections, although it might not be the things that we're asking for necessarily. We wanted things like early voting, and we wanted things like uh, changing the, um, the, the, the the previous year date where you have a uh, deadline, where you have to change your registration. Right, right. All of those things are apparently staying yeah. in place. But what he does want to do is he wants to end fusion voting, and right off the top, yeah. I'll yeah. I'll say I'll you know I'll voice my suspicions that this is completely directed at the Working Families Party. He could have cared less. This was actually benefiting him when he used to get the Working Families Party endorsement, and uh, you know and ride it for all it's worth, and you know back out on promises that he made to get that uh, line. But basically, fusion voting, it's something we have in New York State, not too many states have, where you can uh, run for office on multiple parties at the same time. Right. And you can, and so, uh, you know, it, it gets confusing. But what it does in, in terms of the, you know, w working families party is you can kind of send a signal that, uh, you know, I'll vote for Governor Cuomo, but I'll do it begrudgingly and I'll vote for him on the working families line. Or, you know, it just sends a message that, you know, I'm more for the progressive or the pro-labor party. And, you know, you can still vote for the same Democrat, uh, though you're doing it on another line. 
Um, the downsides of this are is that there's all kinds of tomfoolery going on, right, and and shenanigans where people have been arrested for promising, you know, the line. I think it was the conservative line or the independent line, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, quid pro quo and you know all kinds of fraud and y- you can imagine. But you know, if we do away with it overnight. I think we, you know, we need to discuss yeah. like what yeah. the new role of the Working sure. Families Party might right. be. So well, let, let me let me uh, tell you where I come down on this. This came up in October, uh, as you know. I'm on the New York State Democratic Committee. It took me uh, six years to get elected because <laughs> a lot of people didn't want me there. Well, were you seated a in lot. A lot of people didn't want me there, and let me tell you who some of those people were. They were Cuomo people. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because I am a progressive. Yeah. And I don't take orders from anybody. I am all for the fa- the, the ban on fusion voting. Okay. And I heard the other day, just 24 hours, literally 24 hours before our state committee meeting yesterday in Westchester, mm-hmm. that Cuomo was behind this. And I said, excuse oh, yeah. me, Cuomo isn't behind me, and I'm, I'm against fusion voting. And I'll tell you why I'm against fusion voting. I'm against fusion voting because of the conservative party, because of the libertarian party, because of the independence party, because of the women's equality party, which was Mr. Cuomo's well, party. Yes. Right. And a lot of fake and I am against and 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 this as you say tomfoolery. In our own county of Rockland, we just had some Republicans in the Working Families Party, get the attain the endorsement for the sitting Republican town supervisor. So now, if that is not a something that would want make you want to scratch your head and say, you know, let's start calling a spade a spade. You're a Democrat or you're a Republican or you're working families. Working families. If you're working families, pick your damn candidates. You cannot be on on another line. Pick your pick your candidates, and I trust that when election time comes around, and when Jake is running against Mike, and you're the working families, and I'm the Democrat, if if your working families say, "Gee, you know what? I think my I, I like Jake. He's he's really smart, but I think Mike maybe have more maybe has more experience, and blah blah blah." What I some of the, I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for Mike. One of the problems is it's one of the very problems with 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 fusion voting is the very visual. You walk in the polling booth and and you look at this ballot and you see a Republican on five lines. You you even see people with the Democrat and the Republican, and line. that is absolutely yes. un un. Acceptable. Folks, and that's cats sleeping with dogs. Come on. <laughs> and, yeah, I, but, but and, Mike, I, and I know Repu- uh, I know some Republicans, they're really nice people. And, and you know, and I know a lot of the working families people too. And, and you know, and that, the, and that is a regretful. I had a very, very uh, constructive discussion with a gentleman from Brooklyn yesterday who said if I we don't have the working families, we will I said, wait a second. What Doug. will they do? What will we do? I said, Doug, wait a second. You mean is a Republican's gonna win in Brooklyn? In Brooklyn Heights? I don't think so. You're not going to win in Park Slope. No, you're going to have a fight between two progressives. And one might be a working families and one might be a Democrat. And let the best progressive win. Right. But in a general... Let me also say this. In addition to this, and there's a a very important uh, concept that's being discussed more, and that is ranked choice voting. Well, yeah. (laughs) And I would have no problem in... You know, accepting ranked choice voting. You know, in addition, <laughs> right? <laughs> which may, which, which, which may make the fusion thing just obsolete anyhow. Okay, so ranked rank choice voting. voting uh, so, uh, so I spoke to a couple of people out of San Francisco where they've had it for a while, and they say that after a while, there are some um, some schemes that do sure. de- do develop out of that too. Yeah, and so it is. It is kind Nothing's of like foolproof. right. Is foolproof. Uh, but but here's the thing about the WFP is that the WFP actually. You know, they're a third party, 
but they're really Democrats. They're really progressive right. Democrats, right. Right. and they they kind of work as a shadow well, Democratic over, Party. They're taking over the Democratic Party now. And 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 that's and, and that's an interesting thing, right? Because Cuomo might be in in a lot of areas like Brooklyn, he might be you know uh, bringing people more progressives into the Democratic Party for the takeover Absolutely. that he might not want to see. But you know that goes district by district. The thing about the working families is that they they, they you can have it both ways because what they do is once they have a great primary and they really pushed the mainstream Democrat to the left. Then they back away, right? They use this kind of fudging system where they replace the candidate's name on the working families line with like a lawyer in Schenectady, and it ends up so that they never have to play spoiler. In the new system, right? What you're saying is great. You can vote for Mike. You can vote for Jake. But if you if you split the the Democrat the left word vote, and you you end up in some cases you know handing it to a Republican, and that's what the working families has always said that sure. they would never do. Right, and that that's a, yeah. And that's, that's so how do we deal with that? Well, in October I went to my first state meeting, and it was the it was a disaster. It was a worse. I mean, it was a horror show. It lasted 15 minutes. And some would some would say that that committee in October was controlled by the conservative Governor Cuomo. Right. So uh, this is the New York State Democratic Committee. That's correct. You were just elected, and you go up for your first meeting. Right. And this is kind of a kind of a committee that's in rebuilding mode. I would oh, say. Oh, absolutely. It's like every yeah. good Democratic Party in this uh, you know group in the state of New York. I mean, I'll, as some of you. Listeners might know I'm the I'm the chair of the of the of the Orange Town Democratic Committee, and we have the best committee. It's a in progr- the progressive it a committee, prog- but it's it's not only progressive; it's transparent, right? And people have a voice, right? And there's no funny business. I mean, some people like me, some people can't stand me, but but I you, do my but you very conduct best. Business. I do my very best to open up the forum at all times to. Make sure the voices are out there, and, mm-hmm. and people say, you know, we you shouldn't allow this, or you shouldn't allow resolutions to come from the floor during a meeting when nobody's, you know, we haven't had a chance to really research them, and that's a real push and pull for me because sure. on the one hand, one hand I say, oh, we need to study that, put it in a committee. Well, guess what? Everybody in the world knows that's one of the greatest. Uh, what do they call it? Uh, grab and kill? What was that old thing? Catch and kill. Catch and kill. I yeah. you know, throw in the committee and they're right. going to forget about it. So uh, I so yeah. I'm I'm always willing to say let's take a chance with it you know if we screw up we screw up but I'd rather screw up going forward than screw, than screw, screw up, up going openly backwards. right screw up openly right so so yeah my, so the New York State Committee has uh, really opened up and maybe the governor did choose Jay Jacobs and he probably did your right. brother Jay uh, <laughs> not related not related uh, this is this is the new, uh, the new chairman chair. from That's Long correct. Island right? That's correct okay. And granted, I don't have the experience that a lot of people out there have on the committee. But his approach is open. He listened. I had a little chat with him on the side. He came into the Progressive Caucus. I'm delighted that he's there. Okay. Because he he listens. It's hopeful. I mean, we had a whole series. The Progressive Caucus had a whole series of resolutions. And I don't believe one of them had the governor's name on it, but I may be naive. I'm only... Mm-hmm. 68. <laughs> so I've, I've been around the block too many times. But I can tell you, you know, as I said to you a minute ago, the October meeting was maybe controlled by the the conservative uh, element. Maybe the one, if it was conserv- if it was uh, controlled by anybody, it was the progressive Cuomo. And, you know, my feeling is... You know, don't always you know, fight with the the bride that brought you, or whatever, or whatever. The cliche so, is. so, so, bring us into the committee. What are the big orders of business that that the average person doesn't know about? Well, it's giving a voice. I think it's giving a voice to the local political parties. You know, um, I found when I came back from the October meeting, <clears throat> I went to our legislators and other people on the executive committee, and I said that was a disaster. And local legislators told me, oh, I know, Mike. I, I, I haven't been going to those things for years. They're terrible. They were hollowed out. And I said, that's the voice of the party. That's the voice of the party. How can you, you know, walk away from it? And they said, you know, I got bigger fish to fry. Well, this is a fish that, you know, I deserve, I, I believe deserves an opportunity to swim. 
And it's a void. It's an opportunity. I mean, the chairs, the people like me who are, you know, town chairs and activists, a lot of new NIPAN people on the right. committee who got themselves uh, elected as the state reps. Um, so it's really giving a voice, another avenue, right. another avenue for policy, for democratic policy to get to the top, to get to the legislature. Right. I mean, this, you know, there's what, 350 of us or 325 of us on the committee. So, uh, you know, and there's, you know, I'd say there's a good solid um, 75 who are in the uh, Progressive Caucus. Really? That's and so, uh, and maybe more. Uh, so, and they... They and, could and be I, stealth I, progressives? Uh, <laughs> and, and I sat next to a bunch of people who... You know, we're from upstate in, you know, Delaware County. Yeah. And all, you know, and they were going like, oh, really? I mean, we're educating them about the ways of the world. And uh, and by the way, we don't get a nickel for doing this, by the right. way. We don't so, even get reimbursed <clears throat> mileage to go to this meeting. So, so yeah, so my so understanding is, is that the New York State Democratic Committee has kind of been an empty vessel for it a long time. Yes, it, it could has. conceivably do funding. It could actually fund down-ballot races, yes, right, in, in particular yes, areas that they want to pool the money together, right? But it's not. It hasn't been used for no, that. It has just no. only been a vehicle for the governor. It's, and been, a, it's, a, it's, been, a, it's been a ridiculous... <clears throat> I hear, like, uh, the Washington State Democratic Committee is the most progressive uh, possibly in the whole nation, that they really push things. It's a whole, you know, the body is used as a as a force to be reckoned with because they have a, an extremely progressive chair and they have uh, Jay Inslee as the governor yeah. who's, you know, who's yeah. uh, decently progressive. So what it could be, just... It's really interesting because it was, you know, I mean, I have to tell you, uh, you know, I needed 500 signatures to get on the ballot, on the ballot. you know, to, to run for it. And, and 98% of the people out there in the real world don't even know what the heck I'm talking about. Absolutely. I was petitioning for you. Yeah. yeah. And, but I had people petitioning for me and it was wonderful. I mean, it just, you know, it's great when people are out there, you know, they're walking, they're going to their neighbor's house, they're knocking on the door and saying, hey, listen, sign on this line for, we for need, Mike Hogan. We need you there. We think he's a decent guy. And so... I'm delighted that we have made this turn, and I was very, yeah, and I really want to say to all my working families, friends, we'll find a solution. And that's what I said to Jay Belanca and this gentleman from Brooklyn yesterday and some of the other leadership. We'll sit down and find a solution. You know, we've got to be fair. I mean, you know, we can't say, okay, no fusion voting except for working families. That will not work. Right. So, no. But, we, but there is a, you know, I'm sure there's a way in which we can, because the ballot is, I mean, I know people who say, gee, I'm independent. I don't want to belong to a party. I belong to the Independence Party. And everybody knows it's a fake. And they are actually extorting government jobs in Rockland County, taking your tax dollars. Right. You know? And the Independence Party also funded the IDC. Oh, yeah. And it was it was basically a, just a, a funnel, yeah. and, and which they got in trouble. There's still actually, right now, there's still supposed to be a Board of Elections investigation about sure. that. About yeah, and, and hopefully somebody will be <clears throat> making little rocks out of big rocks. I doubt it. <laughs> well, well, you know, Jeff Klein became a giant lobbyist for the uh, oh, sure Mercury oh. Analytics. Well, Mercury, yeah. oh, and so he's literally working for, like... You know, I Ukraine. Knew I know. I, I, everybody in the world knew that was going to happen. Yeah. God bless the word. Biagi. Yeah. I had, I had a delightful discussion with Miss Biagi. Alessandra Biagi. Alessandra. I ran into her at an event in, in, in the city back in in December. And I was talking to her. I said, you know, you got to really be careful of these lobbyists. I said, they're going to start out by just saying hi, giving you a pen, taking you to lunch, taking you to dinner. You know, giving you tickets to a conference in San Francisco, and the next thing you know, they're going to write you a check for five thousand. Oh, no problem. And then ten thousand. And then, by the way, Miss <clears throat> Biagi, we'd like you to do this and do this and do this, and you're bought. You're bought. And I right. said, I said, anytime you feel that coming on, Miss Biagi, Senator Biagi, I said, go back home, put on those sneakers, and walk your neighborhood, and remember who you represent. Yeah. And I say that to every legislator: don't forget who you represent. 
Well, yeah, mm-hmm. you you have this new blood in the state senate. I, I was just talking to Zellner Myrie's uh, chief of staff uh, the other day, who asked me to make a correction in something. And I love I love these guys. Julia Salazar, she is a self described uh, democratic socialist. Yeah. You know, uh, Rachel May, you know, she's new to politics. You have uh, Jessica Ramos, who is a, a labor activist, a mother to... Yeah, don't ever forget, and I tell this to all my uh, conservative uh, Republican uh, uh, relatives, don't ever forget, I, th- I think I said it was four words, but it may be five. Social Security, Medicare, and unions. Right. All Democrat. Organized don't labor. Forget it. Organized don't forget labor. It. So if you were, you know, if you all of a sudden said, start talking about socialism, oh no. Social Security. Right. Medicare. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's a loaded word. It's going to be the big word of the of you know for the next year and a half, uh, you know, leading up to the election, regardless of who wins the Democratic uh, <clears throat> primary. Um, you know, the Trump and the Republicans are going to be trying to make it sound like there's this big hammer and sickle, you know, yeah, coming down. Sure but, but you know, when when w- you know when the rubber hits the road, you know, the argument is really. Do we want to join, you know, New York State, for example? Do we want New York State to be one giant pool for health insurance? Because if we do, we'll get a hell of a discount, and we'll get a hell of a of a of a, of a drug prices, you know, uh, buying power, and you know, and what that will do is also put the rich in the same bed as the poor, right? Now you can go get your Cadillac plan, but most people will, won't do that. Actually, yeah. you know, the same thing with the MTA. Right. The MTA, you know, rich people use it, poor people use it, everybody uses it. You know, should we use, you know, all of the cars on the road and all of the waste and people driving with one person in a car? You know, should we use some like congestion pricing and should we use some maybe commuter pricing to fix the problems in the MTA so that we have a great system, yeah. you know, that that benefits everybody? Absolutely. A, a system for the 21st century. I mean, if we don't start thinking about 10, 20 and 30 years ago uh, from now. <clears throat> we're crazy. I right. mean, we at one time the city of New York had the best mass transit system in the world. You know, from subways to trolleys, and and we allowed them to take second, you know, play second fiddle to automobiles because of the automobile lobby and the oil, oil lobby. and gas lobby. Oil and gas lobby. Yeah. And it happened right out. I mean, they ripped up the railroads. They, and they owned built the, the Long Island Expressway. Owned this country for a long crap. time. I'm sorry. Yeah, Robert Moses, fans. right? Yeah. And, I mean, uh, and, we, and we, you know, that's, that's why, you know, education is so important. And I preach to those new teachers all the time. Every single teacher should be a civics teacher and teach the history of this country and how it was built and why it was built the way it was. Right. And how it's eroding because we're allowing, you know, a very selfish few to control us control yeah. our brains you know they and, control and control the message. and control the consumer options that we get yeah. right i mean if you wanted to buy an electric car right now you have very few options very few affordable options yeah. right i mean there's nothing on parity with like a cheap honda or toyota um you know or hyundai you know so even if you wanted to do the right thing there's like a a, a price barrier and uh and that that you can't get over yeah, well, we're going to wrap up. Uh, so we want to thank Mike Hogan. Uh, Mike, hopefully you can come back. Thank you, Jake. So for uh, New York Update, this has been Jake Jacobs. Join us next Tuesday at 7 p.m. And as always, you can catch our archives at newyorkupdate.org. So we'll speak to you again. And sayonara. Rockland,